is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Is the US heading for conflict with Iran? And should the UK be selling the Saudis weapons for the conflict in Yemen? No matter how appalling its human rights record has been, it's always been able to rely on the uncritical political and military support of successive UK governments. Not for the first time, the rest of the world is watching as tensions rise between Iran and the United States. The starting point was perhaps Donald Trump's decision last year to abandon the international nuclear deal under which Tehran constrained its uranium enrichment work. New US sanctions have crippled the Iranian economy, but it's last week's mine attack on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman that's triggered this latest escalation. All sides are saying they don't want war, but the US is deploying another thousand troops to the Middle East and Saudi Arabia says the world must take a decisive stand. In Britain, Defence Minister Earl Howe is appealing for calm. Our aim, as the Noble Baroness says, is to de-escalate the situation, reduce tensions, and we are acting with our E3 partners, France and Germany, to that end. However, it would be foolish to claim that the dangers have now uh, disappeared. They are still very uh, real. Well, let's speak to Dr. Karen von Hippel, who's Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Hello, Karen. And the dangers are still very real. It's easy to dismiss reports of tension in the Middle East. But when the US Secretary of State is reportedly issuing private warnings to Iran of the risk of full on conflict, it's bound to cause alarm, isn't it? Right. And I think the bigger concern is that while neither countries overall want conflict, there are certainly elements in both countries that wouldn't mind conflict. And so Trump, uh, on the U.S. side, Trump, of course, does not want a war at all. We know that. However, you know, we know that Bolton is fairly trigger happy, especially about Iran. Not sure about Pompeo. So there are a few others that that would be maybe more willing to engage. And on the Iranian side as well, there are divisions, too. And so there is a concern that you know, a mistake could be made that could escalate or that actually, you know, one actor like what we've already seen could really change the situation on the ground. And the US and Britain both seem in no doubt that Iran was behind the mine attacks, but was it necessarily an act of the Iranian regime or others inside the Iranian military, do you think? Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's just too early. Uh, certainly, it looks like the Revolutionary Guards or affiliation with them could have been involved, but it's just too early to tell. And of course, they're still strenuously denying it. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to wouldn't want to guess at this point. Mm. Also with me in the studio is defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, Iranian forces have shot down a US surveillance drone. How do you avoid a miscalculation by one side that drags both into a formal conflict? We don't do it this way. I mean, it, it, the, let's not underestimate the opportunities for miscalculation, but also the signs of, uh, let's not take it too far, let's say from the Iranians who said today they reserve the right to take out a drone if it flies over their territory. Now that's a reasonable thing to do with anybody, but it's not sort of raising the the threat. It's actually sort of uh, making another point, and that is that both the Iranians and the Americans know that there have been drones over this region in the past three weeks that have been so-called threatening. I mean, one carrying, for example, uh, uh, I think an air-to-air missile, 
uh, and others as reconnaissance uh, vehicles. And so that is the size of it. It's a much bigger thing that's going on. It's a much, much bigger sort of tapestry of, of weaponry there. And it, quite often it's a local commander that makes the mistakes, not at present at the 5 a.m. in the morning. Mm, uh, Karen von Hippel, uh, there must also be concerns with the knock-on effects of any conflict on the other nations in the region. Yes, of course. I mean, the region's already incredibly volatile. And <clears throat> certainly there's a an alliance of countries that are very anti-Iran right now, which includes Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, at the forefront, and all of them might be looking for an excuse to go to war. So it could it could really escalate very quickly. Mm-hmm. There's another side of this, and it's, it, it's, it's not necessarily the, the, the excuse to go to war. I mean, I, this, is just, this is just imagination, for example, but the Israelis uh, uh, might think to themselves, well, the fact that uh, next week we'll be looking at Iran- the Iranians going to the next stage of enrichment of uranium, uh, which can be for, 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 for peaceful uses as well as warheads. Uh, and they may decide, to, let's take out an, an enrichment plant. That's not war. That's just doing something which they've done before and just take out the plant. And that sort of puts it in a different dimension. You've also got to remember, it's a regional thing. The Saudis, uh, their, their feelings towards the Iranians uh, are quite terrible. They would like them, almost like them destroyed. And so that's another part. You know, would you be used to sort of trying to, trying to, to hit the Iranians? Uh, and that's a one-off. And it's the one-off which, in fact, may lead to something else. But it ain't war. Well, it could, yeah. Go on, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to say, right? I mean, it's certainly, as Christopher is saying, the, there are a lot of risks and there are a lot of potential triggers. And yes, everyone will try to prevent something all out, but you just don't know right now because you have some loose cannons in charge of several countries, <laughs> including in the United States. It's just really hard to tell. What's the best hope for this calming down, Karen? Well, it would be nice if there was a country that could play a mediating, calming role. Uh, not entirely sure right now what country could do that. Maybe the UN could actually assert itself, uh, or, or even the European Union. But certainly we need a, a, a well-respected mediator to get into the thick of it right now. The European Union is the best bet because the Iranians could then perhaps sort of say, you could, you could, you could discuss this without being necessarily on the side of America, which the EU has tacitly shown that it's not on the side of America. Yeah. Sit rep. Still to come, 20 years after the end of NATO operations over Serbia, are we ignoring worrying signs from the region? Plus, the Battle of Waterloo is fought again in Glasgow. The rising tension between the US and Iran comes as a leadership vacuum once again opens up at the Pentagon. This week, Donald Trump withdrew his nomination of Patrick Shanahan to take on the role of Defence Secretary full-time after allegations over domestic violence. Trump's named another standing figure, which means the Pentagon is going through its longest ever spell without a confirmed head. Well, Rusi Director General Karen von Hippel is still with us. Uh, Karen, you spent years in Washington. If you were still there, how worried would you be about the vacancy at the top of the Department for Defense? Hmm, I mean, it's certainly a concern. It's not my biggest concern right now because Trump has not been that interested in filling a number of important vacancies. There's still not a U.S. ambassador in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm not sure if Turkey has been confirmed yet, but we're well into the second year and some of these countries don't have an envoy. Trump doesn't seem to care that much because I think he likes to control uh, everything. And if he feels that he is acting people, he has more control. He didn't have a great experience with, with, with General Mattis when he was Secretary of Defense. 
And so I think he might be fine with someone acting. Now, there are laws about how long someone could act in an acting role. And the current uh, acting secretary is a guy named Mark Esper, who's the secretary of the army. He's actually pretty well respected by uh, a number of other senators. He has a pretty interesting CV. He has a lot of experience. So there, there's a lot of talk that he may end up getting the appointment. Um, but I think, you know, people are, 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 let's say, Trump versus some of his colleagues. Trump wants to make sure it's somebody who is, you know, who, who's malleable, who he can control. Mm, because Patrick Shanahan was not seen as an especially decisive figure himself, was he? More likely to consent to the views of the hawkish White House advisors like John Bolton, Mike Pompeo. Just strengthens their hand, doesn't it? Well, I think actually Shanahan was also happy to do what Trump wanted. And Trump and Bolton are not always in agreement over defense and security issues. I think Bolton is really on the far end of the spectrum, and Trump is very aware of that. I mean, in in that sense, you can compliment Trump that he's willing to listen to someone who has very different views than he does, but still not not always follow his advice. Uh, But Shanahan was, I think, more of a kind of a passive figure, really. Yeah, I think, I mean, sometimes we can make just a little bit too much of what goes on in America as opposed to the United Kingdom. United Kingdom hasn't got a defence secretary, then you should start getting worried. In America, it's always been my thought that the the different sort of sub-departments, like Department of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, etc., and in the State Department, different sides, get on very well by having an assistant secretary, I think it's the term, uh, actually running them. They are big organisations that run very well under themselves. It's only when you get to the big political decisions and who's backing whom Mm. that you really must have somebody who's sitting there who can go into the Oval Office that morning and say, this is where we've got to. Well, meanwhile, Donald Trump returned to Florida this week to formally launch his bid for re-election in 2020, unveiling a new slogan and talking up what he says are his many achievements in office. I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. Thank you. Keep America great. We have done so much with our military, with our vets, with the Second Amendment. There have been few presidents that have been able to do what we've been able to do for you, and it is a great, great feeling. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Well, Trump is obviously not shy about what he sees as his achievements. Uh, Karen von Hippel, give us um, a bit more of a dispassionate appraisal of his record on the military so far, if you would. Well, I would say on, overall on defense, he has basically devolved a lot of decision making to his chiefs. Uh, you know, the exact opposite of what Obama had done when Obama really had micromanaged a lot of decisions. Uh, on the other hand, they haven't actually done that much. Uh, they're still in Syria. That, that's different is what I mean. They're still in Syria. Uh, they're bringing a thousand more people out, yes, to more soldiers out to the Gulf because of concerns about Iran. But, uh, you know, things haven't changed that much. Afghanistan is pretty much chugging along. And, you know, he, you know, he's had one or two bombing episodes in Syria due to chemical weapons, but he hasn't really done anything significant. So he hasn't withdrawn and he hasn't accelerated mm-hmm. that much. He hasn't had to do very much. That's not not just. It's not as if he hasn't done as much. Uh, therefore, he's avoided doing this. There hasn't been the same sort of pressures. Mm-hmm. What is different, or what is the thing to watch? Uh, two years ago, you saying, "Bring America home," uh, and this is what we're about to see, perhaps as a big test for him, will be in Iraq. 
uh, you know, bring America home, and that's about to come to come to him as well. Now, as tensions with Iran rose this week, one pivotal intervention came from Saudi Arabia, further proof of the huge importance of that country's relationship with Western powers like the US and Britain. But British arms sales to the Saudis are under the spotlight again after a key court ruling. The Court of Appeal says the government hasn't done enough to assess whether Saudi authorities are breaking international law in their military campaign in Yemen. That campaign relies not only on weapons from countries like the UK, but tactical assistance as well. Andrew Smith is from the campaign against the arms trade. The Saudi regime is one of the most brutal and repressive dictatorships anywhere in the world. And no matter... How appalling its human rights record has been, it has always been able to rely on the uncritical political and military support of successive UK governments. Well, former Foreign Secretary David Miliband, who now leads the International Rescue Committee, says the UK and others have made the crisis in Yemen much worse. There's no question that external aggression in the failed war strategy in Yemen hasn't just delivered a humanitarian catastrophe. The aims of the war in Yemen, and the UK is part of this Saudi-led coalition, the aims are allegedly to push back the Iranians to restore stability. The opposite has happened in Yemen. Well, Karen von Hippel is still with me, and I'm also joined by the journalist Tim Marshall, who for many years covered foreign affairs for Sky News. Hello, Tim. Campaigners accuse Britain of playing a far bigger role in the conflict in Yemen than anyone in London would want to admit. It's a Saudi-led coalition, but without the support of countries like the UK, the operation couldn't continue, could it, Tim? Uh, It could. Well, it would be interrupted until they got a new arms supply. Uh, either by buying more from the Americans or the French, uh, who are, I think, the third biggest supplier, would then step into that breach. I'm not making an argument for or against the arms sales. I'm just arguing that if Britain decides it wouldn't do that anymore, it wouldn't stop the war. Mm. The government wants to appeal this ruling, and while it may or may not win a legal argument, what about the moral argument, Christopher? There is a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen and a reasonable argument that the UK is to some extent playing a role in that. You can't actually sort of quote the moral argument when you're simply selling arms. That wasn't the purpose of selling them in the first place. It was sell- just, the, just, talk, just talk us through the, the extent of the UK support to the Saudis. The, it's our biggest, uh, or the United Kingdom's biggest single arms sales uh, place. Simple as that. You've got to remember the conditions of it. When this started, in fact, I was at a place called the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute when this began back in the Thatcher years. And we looked at it in this way. It was almost as if the, the British government was seeing Saudi Arabia in those days like they were looking for toys. They couldn't fly these aeroplanes. They couldn't sort of fix the ordnance. They couldn't fuse ordnance if it was going to be used. And fusing ordnance, ordnance is particularly important. They couldn't train people. They didn't have the training conditions. And here was an opportunity for the United Kingdom to sort of go in, and it was a sort of it wasn't a toy town sort of uh, a business because these were huge uh, uh, mil- 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 military sophistic- sophistications. But the point was, it didn't have that importance now. And the reason it didn't have that importance now was because we used to say, who are they going to use them against? Mm -hmm. And the Yemen story is only four or five years old. Uh, Karen von Hippel, the Court of Appeal, they said the government hasn't done enough to assess whether Saudi authorities are breaking international law in their military campaign in Yemen. What more could they be doing? Well, I mean, looking at uh, the civilians that are being killed is pretty simple, actually. And, and in fact, the disapproval is also even in the United States, which is also 
uh, just uh, trying to get eight billion in weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, and you know the Senate is also uh, voting against that. Now I don't think they can stop it in the states, uh, whereas here I think it's been suspended. But yes, it's a huge, huge humanitarian disaster, and there are too many civilian casualties. And so certainly, uh, you know, this could this could at least pause the campaign for some time while things change, and it might be an opportunity for the UN and others to accelerate what they're already trying to do to end the war. It does look, Tim Marshall, as though it's been almost convenient not to know exactly what's happening, what Britain's part or what British bombs are doing in Yemen. Mm. Uh, But it does seem, do you think now this is a tipping point that there is going to have to be more scrutiny as a result? How would you do that? Yemen is one of the most dangerous places in the world. Um, I don't think the uh, UN team would go out into the badlands where ISIS operates or where the Houthi uh, or or, or government delegation from the UK, the journalists, uh, those that are brave enough to go there, I haven't been there for many years, uh, tend not to venture out of the capital or or down south. So I'm not sure how you would. On the wider issue, to answer one of your previous, to try to answer partly one of your previous questions, they would be breaking international law if it was, if it was proven that there were British military officers involved in the targeting choice and decision to fire. Also to explain why sometimes agricultural areas are, uh, are targeted. Were the Brits involved in any of the incidents where a wedding party was wrong, uh, inadvertently or deliberately bombed? Those are the questions that would, that would then put the UK on the wrong side of international law. Uh, nobody knows for sure the answers to those questions, and I find it difficult to see how you would find out. In the United Nations, uh, John Thurman, who who is the Deputy uh, Permanent Secretary there, he's had to face this in the last 10 days of people saying, when the British sell anything, they have a, they have a condition, and that is they're not responsible for the use of those. And also, by their uh, end-user certificates, which they issue mm. and check, um, they have to make sure they're not going to be sold on to somebody else or be given to a militia uh, to use on behalf of the buyer. Now, there is the depth of the problem. But in practice, what happens? The British are selling uh, uh, aeroplanes, two types of aeroplanes. They're selling the ordnance that hangs off those aeroplanes, which includes missiles as well as, uh, as, as well as precision bombing. They are training all the pilots to fly those two aircraft. They are training the mechanics who have to keep the airplanes flying. And one aircraft flying uh, operationally there has got a life of about 15 hours, that's all. They are also training them how to do two things important. They're training them, they're not saying, right, you go for that target. But when the Saudis say, this is what we want to target, there are British people seconded from the Air Force or otherwise are saying, this is how you do it. And they are giving them the most important bit of all, they are giving the fusing positions on those, on, on those which, weapons. Which goes a long way to explaining why the British government intends to uh, appeal against this court ruling. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Karen von Hippel, thank you for your time today. Now, it's two decades since the, US, the then US President, Bill Clinton, announced the end of NATO's bombing campaign over Serbia. Tonight, for the first time in 79 days, the skies over Yugoslavia are silent. 
For more than two months, NATO jets had pounded Serbian targets, intervening to end a humanitarian catastrophe in Kosovo. 50,000 NATO troops were committed to the region. The violence left a bitterness that plays out this day. Tim Marshall spent much of the Kosovo conflict on the ground, covering it for Sky News, and he wrote about it in a book called Shadow Play. And now, 20 years on, he's revised that book. Uh, Tim, um, first of all, it's probably worth running through the circumstances that led to NATO's intervention in Kosovo. What was going on there? In 98, the very restive province of Kosovo, uh, which is was uh, indisputably part of Serbia and the cradle of their civilization, but 90% of the population was now Kosovo-Albanian, and they had said, we don't want to be ruled. You know, given that the breakup of Yugoslavia has happened, right, we will be independent as well. In that year, 98, the Kosovo Liberation Army killed about 1,000 Serbs. The Serbian army, militia, and police killed about 2,000 Kosovar Albanians, and there were very brutal scenes and villages cleared and all the rest of it. Americans and the Brits mostly warned and warned and warned. And then uh, in very early, I think it was 99, at the Rambouillet conference, I argue, delivered to the Serbs a fait accompli, uh, basically a surrender document, uh, which I don't think any government could have uh, signed. They didn't sign it. They walked out. And uh, within a few weeks, the bombing started, which ended with, after 79 days, the Serbian forces withdrawing from Kosovo up to a certain point. And now Kosovo has declared independence and a majority of the countries in the world recognise it. Russia notably doesn't. Mm, Or Serbia, of course. And you describe the conflict in Yugoslavia as the first time you started to understand the nature of war. Why? Well, that was Bosnia, actually, a few years previously. But, you know, A... The idea of war in Europe to my generation was absolutely shocking because, you know, no, that was what happened in the mm. past. Um, but B, it was because I then, I just saw stuff happening and then I saw how easy it was that if you have ancient suspicions and hostilities and fears about the other, whether the other is a Bosnian Muslim or a Bosnian Croat or a Bosnian Serb, if you have these fears... There are people of ill intent who are happy to promote themselves into power by pouring poison into their own people's ears, making them even more afraid, and then making sure you separate people to give them the distance to then push them back onto each other. And that's just something I saw replicated over and over again in different conflict zones. And you you suggested that the, the situation there, it wasn't taken seriously enough soon enough. No, not in either case. I mean, if you look at the the Bosnian war, I think it was Jack... Delors and Jack Poos and uh, the, the political class of the EU at the time said to the Americans, back off, we've got this. You know, this is the hour of Europe was one of the phrases that was used. Mm. We can solve this. And they did nothing. They were hopeless. Three years later, after hundreds of thousands of deaths, the Americans came in with their firepower within NATO and they clamped it, led to the Dayton Accords, 95, 96. They then took their eyes off the ball a, a wee bit again and then Kosovo happened. And I'm arguing in this uh, new book, Shadow Play, that that was the biggest story around for all of us of our generation. But you argue we had the eye of the ball. And then suddenly in 2001, 9-11 happened. And so all the massive plans and the attention and the top figures of diplomacy suddenly diverted their gazes, understandably elsewhere. And over the past 20 years, all we've pretty much done is freeze it. All the issues that are there have not been solved. Tell me, Tim... One of the concepts, the whole concepts of Europe now, especially in the, in the debate, is that it, it can handle the security of Europe, which is very important mm-hmm. um, for the future, and we have new, new scenarios. Why was it then 
that Europe was so incapable of actually handling something. The Germans were um, fairly friendly towards the Croatian position. Uh, the Brits said we want a level playing field. <coughs> that was our Foreign Secretary Douglas heard. What it meant was a level killing field. Um, other countries thought that Serbia had a, an argument and they just squabbled amongst each other. They didn't have the diplomatic firepower. Nobody was prepared to put any military hardware in there, which is what it needed to grip it in very early on. And Europe really overestimated its own ability to solve a diplomatic crisis in its own backyard. It just didn't have the templates with which to do it. Um, I'm That's not... almost saying that they weren't looking hard enough for a solution. Well, the internal politics of each country did. Mm. Yeah, but I, I, you're right. They didn't try hard enough. And they, but they also, also they overestimated their own abilities. Uh, I personally th think this is a, a related but separate issue. You can make a very strong case for a European army. I don't make that case. <clears throat> I think it would undermine NATO. And I also think that they would put their army together, face a crisis like this, and then suddenly the nation states would suddenly, well, I'm not sure about, oh, well, do you want to do that, etc., etc. Tim, it's good to speak to you. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, Tim Marshall and his uh, revised vision of Shadow Play is out now. Finally this week to Glasgow, a scene just a few days ago, a reenactment of one of the world's most famous battles, albeit on a slightly smaller scale. More than 20,000 miniature soldiers took part in the tabletop rematch of the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon's final defeat by Wellington. It was a one-off event in aid of a charity which aims to help military veterans. Among those taking part was former RAF supply officer John Cooper, who now teaches military history at the University of Glasgow, and he's on the line now. Uh, John Cooper, hello. Um, I say tabletop. It was actually quite a few tables and quite a f quite big tables as well. It sounds like uh, organising was uh, pretty hard work. Yes, Kay, it's over 200 tables were involved to create a uh, a, a board game which was uh, 24 metres by 8 metres. That's kind of the size of a small swimming pool. <laughs> and we had 120 players travelling in from all around the world. And the final count on the amount of figures is 22,345 figures. That's give and take a few deserters and a few hangers on. <laughs> uh, so it was a bit like, felt like a bit like herding cats organising this thing. Um, but we had a lot of ex-service personnel involved. So it went off with a degree of military precision. We were very happy with it, what went on. How did it go? I mean, how did you do it? Well, well, first of all, you've got to um, pull together like-minded individuals. You've got to get out there into the wargaming world and uh, pick, a, pick a battle which they're all keen to do. Uh, fortunately, the Battle of Waterloo is one of the favourites for the wargaming fraternity. Uh, and they've got a lot of the figures already painted. But to get that many figures around the table, what we've, we had to get them to have a look at some of the lesser known units. It was all right, they were painting up the old guard and everything like that. They had the, the major units. But the Prussian Landwehr and some of the Dutch militia that took part in the battle, they needed to be sourced and they needed to be painted. And we had to give them up to around about nine months notice to get, the, to get that, those units together. Mm on the board. I just want to bring in our defence analyst Christopher Lee who's been listening to you John. Tell me, I, John, I never understand why people do this. I always see them, I mean quite wrongly because if it were going to be done it ought to be done with places, things like Jutland, good naval battles but uh, <laughs> are you lot, I mean you're I'm sort of your military train spotters aren't you really? Um, 
I've come from the battlefield archaeology point of view. So uh, my interest in wargaming is to use the wargaming as a model by which we can refight the battles. And basically, if we run the model enough times, we can predict patterns of finds and archaeological finds in the landscapes. Yeah, but so do you ever get somebody to... else winning who didn't win at the time? Uh, it does, but we it normally evens itself out. And, and you can get a... Um, a better understanding of what the, the uh, battles were like at the time and uh, the sense of um, what these lads went through uh, in the past. And, uh, so it's, it all adds to the historic account. And when we combine the wargaming with reenactors, with archaeologists, with historians, we normally find something new that comes out of the, uh, that we can put into the uh, story. Um, from the research. But there was also a charitable uh, motivation for this, wasn't there, John? Yeah, yeah, we were doing it for a, a charity called Waterloo Uncovered, um, and this is the brainchild of uh, a guy called Mark Evans and Charlie Fennett, um, both Coldstream Guards. Um, and they are also both um, went to university and did archaeology. So in their early, on, early on in their career in the, in the army, they were looking to see how archaeology could actually help the army. Uh, so, John, I didn't ask you, I don't know if you actually said already, but who actually won the Battle of Waterloo in your Battle of Waterloo? Was oh. it the French by any chance to please my husband? Well, well, unfortunately not. Every time you refight the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon wins because he, he never makes the same mistakes twice. <laughs> um, but on this occasion, he threw everything into the, into the battle line and um, he... he he failed. He's tried to stretch the Allied forces. And there we must, on that point, we must leave it. John Cooper, good to talk to you. That's all for this week. Join me again next week for SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.